Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Real Talk podcast. And today we have a interesting announcement. I will say joyful, um, but I also say bittersweet. Bittersweet. We go with bittersweet. I like that idea. So before we go into our next episode, I just wanted to say that I, Jamel Harp, um, the co-host of Real Talk, will be leaving the podcast and exploring different endeavors. I have been doing the podcast for three seasons, question mark? They blend together. They blend we've together. Done, I know we've done, oh, like a, close to four dozen, three to four dozen episodes. Yes. We've, I've been on since season two. It's been a pleasure working with Casey and the whole Real Talk team and all of the guests that we have talked with over the last couple of seasons, but every chapter has a close. <laughs> oh, gosh. But that does not yeah. mean Real Talk is stopping. No. Casey, you will still be here making content, talking with guests, same kind of content, just different kind of vibes, I would imagine. Yeah. And we, you know, Jamila, I, I do feel like the podcast is a baby that we, we didn't birth the baby. No, we, but we raised them. We raised the baby. Um, yeah. And I'm going to continue raising that baby. Um, it's true. It won't be the same without you. And we will try to, uh, you know, to honor the spirit, the, the vibe, the everything that we've been doing so far and just continue to elevate that. But I'm going to miss you. Oh, listen, I'm going to miss you too. Don't worry. Me and Casey will always be in communications. But I think about the legacy of the podcast, and I imagine over the years, there will be numerous hosts contributing to this work. It will be full circle, so many different topics, so many different experts coming on and talking and sharing. And hopefully people that listen can keep learning about social justice, about higher ed in the world and people around them. Yep. And I have to say, I mean, as a teacher and as someone who's known you for as long as I have been at this university, basically, as long as I've lived in Connecticut since 2018, um, I do obviously support your journey. And I know that it's time, you know, you've, you went to this university, you worked here, you lived here, you graduated from here, you continue to work here. And it's just time for you to leave the nest. Yes. And I am excited about that. And I I am confident that I'm leaving it in great hands. So I I am happy. I am. Well, we wish you all the best. And of course, I'll talk to you later today. But listeners will miss you. You have brought so much um, to the table. And I know folks will miss you. You won't be replaced. I will have a new co-host eventually. But it certainly will be somebody new. It won't be. No one can take your place. You are truly one of a kind. Well, listen, I'm glad to be now a part of um, Real Talk's history. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think the podcast will be strong. And I think, you know, having additional voices and ideas and thoughts is powerful um, and needed, you know. Well, thank you. You know, thank you for everything. And you know, go off and do some things and then come back in a couple of years and talk to us about it. Yeah, maybe I'll be a guest uh, a future season on the podcast and then we can see where life has brought me. All right, my friend. Well, thank you. And folks, here's the, here's the episode. Here it is. Yeah.
everyone. This is KC. Welcome to Real Talk. I'm here today with my guest co-host, Dr. Kelvin Rutledge. And this, Kelvin, this is your first time on the podcast, isn't it? It is. And I'm excited to be here and have this conversation today. Yeah. So Kelvin is my colleague at Southern Connecticut State University. We came in about the same time. Yeah, I got here summer of 2018. So Summer of 2018. Yeah. Yeah, we did get here at the same time. Um, Kelvin is currently an associate vice president for Institutional Inclusive Strategies and Change Management. Before uh, you ran the Career Center, that's not your your the title. Yeah, so... Career Services. Definitely oversaw the Career Center in the Office of Career and Professional Development here. We like our titles here at Southern. <laughs> Long, and we usually have acronyms for them. But you got both uh, a master's and a PhD from Florida State University. Yes, uh, go Nulls. Got to just do it, you know, and in the spirit of it all. Uh, but yes, master's and PhD in higher ed. And so um, just really fortunate to be here in space with you and the invitation to co-host. Nice. Well, you know, Kelvin and I are often um, in the same spaces, doing the, in the same conversations, doing similar work. You from an admin um, perspective and, and point of view, I'm obviously a faculty member in the classroom and I often, so I, someone told me recently that I have an artistic temperament, meaning, um, or a creative mind, AKA messy thinker. <laughs> and Kelvin, I have always appreciated this about you, that you are so, and I tell you this, so organized and systematic. You have a three-part plan <laughs> to get from, from A to B. And, and I just so admire that way of thinking because I've, I'm unable <laughs> to do that myself. Um, so I'm excited to have you as a counterpart for this conversation I, today. I always blame my career in fast food management for that. I think it is a very linear line That's your of training? work. Where right? did you work? Um, so I was a fast food manager at Arby's Restaurant um, in Tennessee. Um, so all they have the meats, mm -hmm. as they would appropriately say, the roast beef sandwiches. And uh, that was six years of my life before I came to hire it. So, yeah. Yeah, you can't be you can't be all over the place doing that. There's a process. Absolutely not. <laughs> interesting. Interesting. <laughs> well, Kelvin, thank you. Thank you for being here. Um, and with us today to have this conversation is Dr. Natasha Flowers, who is from Southern Illinois University in Edwardsville. Um, and she, I, I, we're joking about these long titles, but it's true. It's a higher ed uh, cliche um, that is founded in truth. Um, but she's the assistant dean for anti-racism, equity, and inclusion at the School of Education, Health, and Human Behavior. And she's joining us today um, for this conversation. Natasha, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to be here. I was going to send you a list of all the other people that you could interview, and then I <laughs> I'm just going to do it. <laughs> That's great. Well, we're delighted. You know, we are over here on the East Coast um, in the Northeast, and it's really nice to talk to someone at a different university um, and share with listeners from around the country, um, share ideas, things that we're dealing with, um, and and hopefully solve, <laughs> solve some of the many problems that we face. But before we start, can we just do a check-in? It's, it's mid-November. We're actually recording the day after Election Day. Um, so it's the last third of the semester. Um, you know, how are you doing? How are your students? How are your colleagues? What's the the vibe on campus? How are you doing? All right. Well, I'm just going to jump right in. Mm. Um, I, I appreciate the question. Our department chair asks every week, well, every other week, 
how we're doing. And then he asked us to sort of frame that in, in terms of seasons. And I often say fall because of the unpredictability, the, you know, the crisp, bright possibilities mixed with that rainy muck that comes on a Friday night when you just want clear uh, skies for a football game. And so um, I, don't, I don't know. It's we are probably like you um, juggling that excitement around very specific initiatives that could certainly support our students, strengthen relationships with our local communities within our state, uh, but then also trying to deal with the muck of bureaucracy, mm. you know, all those systems that were built to last mm -hmm. uh, and were completely unhelpful during the pandemic. But we somehow, you know, those were points of pride for many universities. We're still trying to figure out how to be what we say we want to be, how to be responsive, how to create these equitable pathways to licensure, to um, to advancement, just to professional success without all of the the messiness and not the good kind, not the mm -hmm. creative messiness. Right. You know, the we're getting people stuck in mud mm. as we're moving forward. So that's where we are. Mm -hmm. I wanted to end positive, but I'll end with the muck. Sure. And go back to all the good stuff that, you know, that's happening too. But Calvin, mm -hmm. yeah. how about you? <clears throat> I'll pick up from the muck, I think, you know. <laughs> Uh, yeah. much like Casey alluded to, we are that back third and it feels like we've just been running a marathon since Labor Day. Um, so we don't have a fall break at Southern. Um, and so it's just been nonstop since the first Monday of September. Um, mm -hmm. And so the air is definitely, everyone is trying to make it to through the two weeks till we get to Thanksgiving break. And so I think <clears throat> people are searching for those spaces of like, I need a mental health day mm. um, or we're just need to readjust and calibrate this to-do list or this was a cute project for fall 2022. Let's make that a spring 2023 project yep. um, mm -hmm. and sitting mm -hmm. in the fullness of just, we got like two and a half months left of the year and that's okay. Right. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so um, it, right. Just the, the, the fullness of that statement mm -hmm. of two and a half months. But I think for me personally, the seasonality of our work, so definitely mm -hmm. like the highs and lows, um, yeah. I resonate with that and just trying to create those spaces of micro joy, both inside of work and outside of work um, as much as possible. I'm not gonna sit here and say that it's easy or that I always get it, but mm -hmm. trying to at least strive for it. I was thinking earlier today, like, is this how it always feels in November? And then I just forget. <laughs> and then we also feel like this in April you know, in the spring semester equivalent, maybe. Um, I mean, I have a new baby at home, so I'm literally running at home um, all the How time. Baby? She's three, three months. Oh my gosh. So cute. And mm -hmm. currently, as of today, not napping. But every day is, you know, unpredictable. Um, right. So every day is different, which is amazing. And I feel like, actually, as a teacher, it's kind of good training. You have to improvise and be ready to pivot. Absolutely. Moment to moment. Um, mm -hmm. So there's that piece. but And I just came back from leave a couple of weeks ago. So, I mean, I really did come back mid-semester and I've just been running. But I had heard from, from faculty on campus um, at the beginning of the semester that after the pandemic, 
things are really feeling better. Like the energy around campus seems, you know, it's coming back. But I do feel, I mean, I feel this in the classroom and I think just at campus events, just sort of the general vibe. The metaphor I would use is that, um, I don't know if either of you have broken a bone or some sort of injury that has you not able to walk or in a cast for a length of time and then you get it off and that limb, like your wrist or your leg is like, it's nice, like you're healing, but it's mm-hmm. skinny and it's not <laughs> as strong. It needs a little PT. Um, I sort of feel like we're really in that rebuilding phase, like getting back, you know, there's still so many faculty who are not on campus um, where people are spending kind of minimal time. So there's a lot more sort of empty spaces that were full before mm-hmm. the pandemic. So um, there are definitely, you know, bright spots. And then other times where it's like, ooh, I hope that the the blood flow comes back in, mm-hmm. in all these campus spaces. And Natasha, I'm so curious about what it's like right now in a school of education, you know, teaching teachers in this climate. Um, how, like, how are students, you know, are, are less students sort of choosing to go into education or how, would, how do you deal with preparing them for abrasive, abrasive is not even the right word, school boards, um, pushback, pandemic, all the pressures that come with being a teacher. Like, how are, how are you all navigating that? Well, um, I don't even know where to start. Um, I guess I'll, I'll start with our teacher, our teacher candidates during the pandemic, right as schools were beginning to reopen, you know, they welcomed us in a limited capacity. So they were able to see, you know, the everyday acts of teaching Mm -hmm. on top of pandemic protocols, on top of homeschool connections in a different way. And I tell them all the time that you best teacher preparation ever under the circumstances. Mm. I mean, with, without the horrific, uh, without the, without death. I mean, just, yeah. just putting that out there and recognizing that, that people died, but just understanding that you, you saw more humanity mm then I don't know that other folks see mm-hmm. or, or ever saw when they were coming into their programs and nothing was taken for granted, mm-hmm. you know, in this particular uh, context. So um, I assumed that there would be less uh, applicants mm-hmm. and, you know, we had three almost full cohorts of teacher candidates mm-hmm. ready, wanting to pursue their license. And we had, a slight uptick for our teacher candidates of color. We we still have to, uh, we, we still need to think about our messaging, um, our strategies and, and really think about, and just ask, you know, what, what do we need to do differently? Uh, especially our majors that are walking around undeclared mm-hmm. and they have considered education, but for some reason there's a message that's saying, turn the other way. And this is not the time. This is not the context. Um, my teacher candidates, they often ask about what does it mean that that school boards, you know, that parents are so upset about, you know, cultural content and 
and many of them completely misunderstanding critical race theory Mm -hmm. and not really knowing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's the perfect opportunity to introduce critical race theory to in their first year, you know, and I knew they were going to ask and um, it's work that I'm comfortable talking about. So we, we can talk about it and in such a way where this is a theoretical framework. This is not a, a weapon. Mm-hmm. You know, it is about enlightenment, empowerment. It, it's about the truth, like getting to the brass tacks of curriculum so that, you know, there's the right kind of represent representational diversity and that we know what equity looks like. It just happened to come from law and it didn't, unfortunately, it didn't come from from our field. But this is how we can think about it. But nobody's asking you to be a critical race theorist coming out of this program. So we have had to do some of that because the media is just, you know, it's giving our teacher candidates a lot to think about. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, when they're babysitting, when they're tutoring, when they're working as nannies and uh, when they're coaching, they're hearing, it's amazing. They're hearing debates still about critical race theory. They're hearing conversations about, um, you know, who would want to be a teacher? You guys are still fighting for, you know, a decent salary. So we're still talking with them and we have to tell them the truth. These are the states that have the higher salaries, but then look at the cost of living. Uh-huh. And and what can we do? Um, I mean, it's, I don't know. I I'm invigorated by the questions, but then I also feel that we can't get around the fact that you have to be somewhat politically knowledgeable and active to move things forward. Like you can be the best teacher in the world, but if you don't know how to speak up for a child, Mm -hmm. you're not doing, you're not being the best teacher in the world. And then how do you galvanize and create this capacity to fight for the right kind of, of space. So they're, they're willing to talk about it. But honestly, our biggest challenge too is just connecting with our districts and creating the best partnerships so that when they mm-hmm. are in student teaching and when they are hired, that they we've identified spaces for them to be where they can feel supported, mm-hmm. that they are not the only one thinking about this you know, this big, broad term diversity or this big, broad term equity, that people are welcoming them and saying, hey, come and help me do this work with parents and um, or, you know, a parent support networking collaborative project. And that that is natural and it's not, you know, outside of the norm. So that's a long, long (laughs) response to your question. So I'm going to stop there. Well, I mean, critical race theory is sort of the, like the buzzword, um, you know, that's weaponized in society generally right now, but it's a preparation for whatever that next thing is going to be. But it's, it is, you know, ongoing kind of training. And I, as you were talking, I was remembering this week, I'm teaching a communication and gender class. And we were talking Mm -hmm. about gender um, in education in a lot of different contexts. And we just did an opening um, check-in where students talked about their favorite teachers and it I swear it was the most heartwarming class that I've ever had because all of them every single one of them um, all different 
identities, all different socioeconomic classes, um, had somebody who often they're still in touch with, they still text with, they, uh, who has gone above and beyond way outside the classroom to make sure that they felt seen and heard, fed them at lunch. I mean, just, and, you know, of course I have that as well. It's part of why I am a teacher. Um, but it just reminded me like how important public school teachers are to, to all of us. Mm-hmm. I also think a lot about as the critical race theory conversations really emerged, it was kind of this aha moment for many people of how much public education is actually connected to the local community. Uh Um, And what does it truly mean to teach and serve that community? Um, So it was creating this unique space where people had to sit in the fullness of, well, I just thought I was a teacher, but now like this community has now influenced the way in which I can show up. Mm. Right. Um, And sitting in that kind of cognitive dissonance for a while, Um, I saw a lot of students, as I shared, I used to run a career center. So I worked with many students who were at that precipice. I just finished student teaching, right? I'm not sure I want it to go into education Mm. anymore. And what did it mean to unpack serving this community that I may not be aligned with anymore? So yeah, I think Mm -hmm. critical race theory just allowed us to really sit with the fullness of what does public education mean in this time? Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. And it's just, you know, hearing about... um, you know, from friends who are K-12 teachers, um, it's similar kinds of burnout that folks are experiencing. Um, and, and folks who come in, they'll teach for like one or two years and then they do what you're saying. And they're like, I want to make more money or like, wow, is this a big job? You know, and of course, the first few years are the hardest, mm-hmm. you know, because you're just getting you're doing everything for the first time, basically. Um, yeah. And especially now, if these are your first two years. It can be it can be hard, but same conversations in healthcare and and hospitality, a lot of areas. Um, I don't know where people are going. <laughs> They're leaving all of these enormous. I know where sectors. are they working? Where are they working? I do not know. They're working in tech, higher education as well. Tech, maybe, yeah. Although they're getting laid off too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I okay, so I have a question for you two as. Um, folks who work in administration who are um, change makers. um, (laughs) And you all can't see (laughs) Natasha's face, but she just said like, "Uh uh-oh. But I I mean, I, like at an institution, we we have a, what do we have? Between eight and 9,000 students. We are a, a regional state university. We serve almost entirely students from the state of Connecticut. Um, you all have um, more like 13,000, Natasha, mm-hmm. is that right? Do, do you also serve mostly a local population? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, and are you a unionized campus? Yes. Mm. Yes. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So. First time ever for me. I, I wasn't ready. Wasn't ready. So, okay, this is interesting because as a faculty member, I really appreciate um, the many things that the union has provided in our in our contract when it comes to creating institutional change doing so in a unionized environment is a challenge and I wonder if you all could share a little bit about things that are challenges successes like how do you navigate that constraint yeah I can start us off um I think (laughs) um 
much like Natasha's comment, this was also my first unionized experience coming from the South. Um, so this unionized experience wasn't a thing um, as much. So let me take that back. Some spaces and places on campus were unionized, but the majority were not. Um, so coming into a space trying to do whether that's DEI work or activate change or implement some type of community response and call, right? Um, mm -hmm. Felt different as really sitting in the context of really understanding not only the historical, the political, and the policy capacity of this institution of higher education, but also really sitting in the fullness of how does all of that impact the person? Um, mm -hmm. And so what does it mean to really sit and activate change in a system that of course that's built to endure, but then more importantly prioritizes protection and wholeness of the institution. Um, and so as people who are engaged in this work, constantly sitting in the conundrum of how do we advocate for the whole employee or the whole person experience, recognizing that that whole person experience can at times be in contradiction or in combat with the wholeness of the institution. Um, and I think that reality can be hard and create its own unique challenges, but I think it also creates the unique opportunity to reimagine structure systems and policies with people who hold policy power um, in really trying to think differently about the conversations that we can hold in joint collaboration or in joint reciprocity with each other. With each other. I um, Casey, send me a clip of what Kelvin just said. <laughs> presented at Dean's Council, mm. our school meetings. Um, gosh, well said. Just, I mean, my goodness, you packed all the. See how efficient he is? <laughs> Very efficient. Yes, and it's amazing. I, I mean, and really, your your eloquence. And the authenticity of what you were saying, I, I feel and I see all of that. I'll only add the the clunkiness, and you referenced this in terms of the coming together collaboratively and reimagining um, how we. I don't know. It, it's how we grapple with the tension of the existing power dynamic. Like mm -hmm. how, how do we really just, and I like your phrasing, like sit in that and, and really just figure out how to do it. Because I'll be honest, coming into this space after being at a university for whew, the same university for 20 years and participating in you know, the unstructured faculty movements where, you know, right. five or six of you are meeting and talking and strategizing. And then somehow all of that makes its way to decision making. But you're not on an official committee. Right. No one has given you a title. You're not getting a stipend. None of that. It's just you're just doing the work because you see the group of students that are not served. You see uh, that your colleagues are writing and they're not getting the kinds of grants because of the nature of their scholarship. And you're just trying to figure out how to support. And that was hard. I mean, and harder for people that even came before me because there were few in one space together. That was difficult. 
And so I, I felt some of that difficulty, but it was illuminating. It was exhilarating. It was part of faculty life. Here I'm learning that there's still a hierarchy to all of the, of concerns. I, I'm not, I mean, I hate to sound like I've never worked in higher ed, but I, it is a new way. And I, I think that faculty should have support in thinking through what is the real concern? Because you don't want faculty spending three years just spinning about a conversation they had with a colleague, and then it leads to you know a departure from the university. But I, I fear that we need to figure out where we can have those conversations and they still they feel inclusive but still challenging it, without it feeling like there's a there's a, a threat or some sort. I'm still working through it. I don't even know if I'm making any sense right now. You are. I mean, it takes, it takes so long. I mean, I I still uh, feel new. I still feel new. Came in 2018 and I am an intelligent, educated person. And I'm like, I still am not understanding some basic ways that power functions um, around this university. And there's a lot of unspoken Mm -hmm. things that you're trying to decipher and, um, I, I mean, it really is a tension between this unauthorized, like what you're talking about, the you know, um, outside the bounds of a title or a job, where that's just more of, you know, activism, whether you're a student, a faculty member, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. or staff, right? Mm-hmm. And then that when yes. that becomes in- institutionalized, and then you become a, a, in a position, <laughs> then people are like, well, you're just part of the man. Yeah. And I think... A little bit. Both the opportunity and challenge, and sometimes it leans more on the challenge of this work, is most of us have been somewhat trained or empowered to really sit in the power analysis of an environment or a system or a structure and recognizing the different angles or capacity points of the power, right? So just because I may have quote unquote positional power does not mean Mm -hmm. I have structural power, which does not mean I have environmental power, right? and trying to sit in the, sometimes the perception of what people think power looks like in your role Mm -hmm. or your position or your title versus where is the actual influential power to make an impact, particularly in a unionized environment. I mean, part of the the impetus for this podcast too was coming in and I mean, our university historically has had a lot of radical activism and then when we got here in 2018, I thought it was particularly quiet. I mean, I came from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which is like a famously protesty place. But um, the student activism there was lively. And then here, I think I've, in part because everyone's so busy, we have so many commuter students, so many working students. Um, but I think the students also don't recognize what kind of power they have um, in different ways, but they're not seeing their own power to create change or make things happen at the university or to get the ear of university leadership in ways that faculty actually struggle to do. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's awful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then the unique thing too, I think about higher ed versus other, you know, workplaces or other, other institutions is that we do, you know, there are, there's a seasonality to it. <laughs> So, you know, in, in 
the breaks, faculty, myself included, are like, we're, we're out, we're doing other stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. And then meanwhile, y'all are still trying to do, do the work, create the change, and you need us. We need each other to do that. Um, and then also students move through. So, mm-hmm. you know, you may have really effective, like, student activists, organizers, and then, of course, they graduate and go on and do other things. And they can also, that can be a way that, I think some universities take advantage because, you know, if, as long as this, this troublemaking group of students, you know, moves through and graduates and we can, we can get through that and get away with things. Mm -hmm. I'd said in a lot of, I think my previous institutions, to what point do you build avenues for advocacy, but balance advocacy and activism? Um, because while I think they can be interrelated to one another, I think sometimes there is a preference for the former and not the latter. Well, how would you differentiate the two? So I think for me, advocacy is really about the voice and the awareness of an issue for me. Um, so how are we communicating? How do we organize people around this issue? And how do we make people aware that's a thing versus where activism attempts to do is really get us to really critique the system or the structure that is enacting the oppression, right? Um, yeah. And so in some places and spaces, advocacy is more sustainable because it can be a skill or a competency that we can continuously train students in, right? Mm-hmm. Versus activism requires six precepts before you can get to activism, right? What does it mean to do the critical reflection? What does it mean to have a power analysis? What does it mean to under system structures and oppression? Now you can really start to think about what is an activist lane for you. Um, and sometimes that feels unattainable for people to hold in a sustainable way. Mm-hmm. I would only underscore the sustainability because with advocacy, you know, if we're following your model here, which makes more than enough sense to me mm-hmm. that, you know, there is the awareness and there's, there's some capacity building, but you don't know who's going to move to that next intense level and who's and how long they're going to stay and 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 what what roles they're they're going to play but i think i was only going to mention that to me the activism it just it requires this deep level of authenticity where you, you can say, you know what, this is where I have contributed to racism and oppression. Mm. Like, because to me, even even under if I'm following what you're saying, Kelvin, even under that, people can still get away with never talking about where they are. They, they mm. can do the work mm. and they can say this is wrong. And we don't we you know, this is why it's wrong. But I don't know to me that the real activists are they're constantly it's not just deconstructing out there and out there yeah. they're constantly saying what 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 do i need to do differently and they may even say it out loud mm-hmm. and i have to i have to say something about um the election here in the midwest so mm-hmm. i'm in illinois but i have the benefit of watching the news the missouri news and i'm going to mm-hmm. try not to mess up any of this candidate's um campaign but there was one candidate whose family had a history of being, you know, privileged and 
and and sitting in their privilege quite nicely for generations. And she came out of that family and uh, did work in social services, in health services, and uh, created relationships with uh, communities of color and communities really fighting against generational poverty and 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 everything. So um, I think my point is, is that within that campaign, she had to speak to where she came from. Mm-hmm. Other politicians did not have to do that. Mm-hmm. They can, just, you can just come out of the woodwork and you can decide that you are pro this or pro that. Mm-hmm. And nobody's checking. And there's a little bit of checking, but it's not as intense as it was for this candidate. And I applauded just whatever, maybe her campaign manager told her, girl, you can't get past what you, what your family is and what they've done and don't try to do it. And maybe they just, that was some real talk sure. for her. Sure, sure. But, but she, she just, she, it just felt like a, a, a true investment. Uh-huh. And I want to think differently about, and, and this is how I want to serve in this uh-huh. capacity. Uh-huh. To me, getting back to my, uh, my point that I was barely making uh-huh. is that, there's there's just I, I'm most comfortable with activism being sort of that, you know, that mirror and window and and really just doing that work constantly because that's really how change happens. That's that's where we might see people looking more into their positionalities and thinking more about um the fact that you know they've sat on committees for five years and never said a word about the um, the D's and the F's and the withdrawal rates of students, right? Or um, that they never thought about the working student, but they've been on all the whatever the student affairs committees are, but they've never said, "Oh, wait." we have this whole generation or this whole population and nothing that we do is for them. And I mean, shame on them, but they will be at the awareness programming. They will be there, but they, but uh, but what are they doing in the meeting? Mm -hmm. And that's where I want to go back to Kelvin's model that there in the meeting, that activism, you know, where is that that happening? So I appreciate you distinguishing the two. That's a paper there. I don't know if you're trying to find something to write about, but <laughs> maybe one hey. day. Okay, I'm just telling you now. Somebody's going to hear this and they're going to write it. Do-do-do. Calvin's model. Yes, that's right. That's what I got. Yeah, I'll figure out when to write it over winter break. Okay. Well, I mean, Calvin, this. Uh, this is tapping into the conversation we had last week or the one before about the people who are doing on campus, I would say here, faculty members and staff doing the most self-reflective work, like the most authentic kind of work. They're not necessarily the ones sitting in faculty positions of power yes, to right. make changes on, on campus. And I honestly hadn't thought about that until you mentioned it. Yeah. And, you know, those different lenses of power. And of course, we have to center the whole person and their capacity. Right. Mm -hmm. But to make an intervention happen on the organizational or environmental level happen, Mm -hmm. or if that's where change wants to happen, that domain has to be equal. Right. So while we often focus on the individual experiences, 
if we're really talking about an organizational or an environmental issue, or cultural, right? Yeah. The intervention has to match the level of analysis. And so power is critical for me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, right, like who are all the department chairs? Right. Um, so when we talk about a faculty culture experience, sure, I can be an AVP for D diversity, equity, and inclusion, but my day-to-day -day structural power has nothing to do with the environmental power that a chair has. Yeah. Right. So what does that mean for all of and us as we continue? Like, <laughs> Kelvin, you're the one who's in charge of institutional change. Like, what's your problem? Just do it. Right. What are you complaining about? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I also think something that um, I've been thinking about a lot. Well, it, oh, I mean, this is called Real Talk. I just almost was like, well, maybe I shouldn't say that. But I do think that there's so much of this. You know, we always talk about like, well, you're preaching to the choir or, you know, we're all in these spaces like, um, you know, doing really great intersectional justice work around pedagogy and sharing all of that, but kind of in an enclave, which has a lot of value, you know, to, um, you know, sustain ourselves and our energy, share ideas, all of that stuff. But it can't just stay in that enclave. Like We really have to be doing that work in the other meetings where there's just one or two of us who are invested in that kind of work. And a lot of things that I think we can do are, they're not um, unattainable. They're not even, I, I mean, they're not even, they're not sexy. It's like putting down in writing the, the specific things your department's looking for in p and I mean, that, I mean, it's like boring, boring stuff. Um, that actually can make a big difference. It's not all headline grabbing. Um, That's right. Interventions. Um, and I think that sometimes that stops people or we think we can't actually make a change because it does feel like everything is pretty rigid. Now, are you saying that right now there's a group of faculty talking about intersectional social justice? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so we just had a conference, yeah, but most of the same folks, amazing scholars, amazing ideas, you know, a lot of us sort of coming back together for the first time since mm -hmm. the pandemic, um, and then sharing those materials um, from all different fields, computer mm -hmm. science, education, um, art, um, all over the place. So amazing, but I, it just had me thinking, like, how often we're gathering and doing reflective work. But again, it's the same people. And I think maybe part of that is um, wanting to stay safe. Not wanting to put yourself out there. Different people in different positions wanting to do that for self-protective reasons of various kinds. I'm not, and I'm not even saying this to, to call people out because I see this at other universities too. Or even the same people going to the programming. Yes. You know, you get to know everyone real quickly, mm -hmm. which is a nice thing when you're new. But Casey, you just you just said something though that maybe all organic and structured faculty groups have to do is at some point it's, you know, what's next? Are are we going to share mm -hmm in some capacity, a document, a uh, recommendations. Um, 
because that's pretty powerful. But then there's this other large part of me that understands just having that space is also super important. Yes. It, my goodness. Um, so, so important. I, I don't, I can't even talk about it too much because I mean, the world is so small, but I I do want to, if somebody's listening right now that needs to hear this because I needed somebody to tell me this, I'm just going to go out on a limb here. Um, You know, if, if you are invited to join a group of seemingly like-minded people and there are you know, uh, presumably values and envisioning, and it just, it feels, it it feels right. I, you know, you should absolutely join, but you should not to be, there should be no, no, I don't know, there there should not be any negative self-perception if you want to remove yourself from that space uh-huh. like you're you're in there yes and you're starting to really get an understanding of what's going on it, it's almost like joining an organization of any type but i um i say it because there are faculty colleagues right now that are not one of 10 in a cluster hire right they came in they may be one or two critical scholars within the whole school. Mm-hmm. And they're looking around and they're trying to find people. And you may be the founders of several different groups and initiatives and just, you know, just be careful in terms of your alliances and your affiliations and, Keep reaching out to people that are in other spaces across the nation because mm-hmm. you deserve to have that space and not to be in a space with colleagues and you're thinking the total opposite of what they're saying every time they open their mouths about equity and inclusion. And I wish I could give some examples, but I would be going too far. But yeah. I just wanted to speak to folks that may not have what you're describing, Casey. Affinity. Yeah. Infinity groups. Enclave. um, An enclave, just, uh, you know, just collective activism. And they just, because that's still happening. I I wish, I want to believe that we're closer to groups of faculty, but then I'll read an article and it reminds me that um, we're still hiring one the end of one and then expecting them to do everything undo generations of um, racist policymaking. And you better do it within a year. Right. You know, with, with some measurable outcomes and, and you don't have a three point plan that Kelvin would have. You don't have <laughs> you, you need more time to build that capacity to do such. So, I don't know. I just had to speak, speak to those people, find your people. And grad students too. Yes. And graduate Mm -hmm. students. My goodness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It can be, especially, you know, both grad students and faculty so often are moving to a new city into a new place. So there's, uh, there's often already a level of kind of um, isolation or culture shock of some kind. 
never mind all of these dynamics we're talking about. And have you two, did you both say you had, how long have you been there? Been, 2018. 2018. Yep. Oh, 2018. Oh, my goodness. But you've been in your position only since 2021, right? That's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you came from, but and you've had a number of different roles within higher ed, yes? Mm-hmm. And what I, I'm interested in, um, I want to make sure we ask this while, while you're still here with us, but your background's in English and philosophy. Well, mostly English. Mostly English. I love, but I love a little philosophy too. But mm. yes, how do you? Was that in my bio? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Oh, in the, it's uh-huh. in the, the university news. But I'm asking just because I'm also my background's in English and American studies, and um, and I'm curious about how that influences <laughs> your leadership. Mm. I'm going to go some, go to a place that's very. I'm going to get into the weeds just a little bit. So Uh just forgive me. Uh Okay. So one of the ways that I see that part of my history really being more activated every day is thinking about general education requirements Uh and, and the, the way that we are, Again, going back to responsiveness and in my field, we're constantly thinking about how can we support people who are already invested in children and have been working in schools without licenses, right? That's that's where we are right now. So the, the, the teaching assistant yeah. who is bilingual and 100% culturally relevant and culturally responsive, never read anything about Latin Billings, never read mm-hmm. abolitionist teaching, but doing the damn thing, right. okay, doing all of it. And how do we get them from making minimum wage to doing this work in, in the way that they should be doing it? Yes. And, but we have to, we have to address, and I think this is true across the nation, this pillar of general education and what we believe all students should have when they graduate. And so I I sit in a space where I'm thinking, oh gosh, I mean, the English major is what, it calmed my restless mind. You know, it, it I mean, I, that's where whatever I didn't get, it, I, I'm from Mississippi, so I had Black female teachers who, you know, I learned about Black literature, even if it wasn't in school. So I come in from that and recognizing the power of literature and what can be accomplished through discussing the nature of humanity in these spaces, but then having this agonizing feeling that if we cling too much to this pillar that we are, we're, we're eroding the pathway to a, to a license for this mature person who has done everything they can for our children within their capacity. I'm torn right now about that. And because I see, I understand what my colleagues in English or in the department of English are saying. It's just that no, it's, we're not talking about 
our native students. We're not talking, and I mean native just by, you know, just in terms of, you know, starting first year and matriculating. We're talking about grown people who are ready for, that need our support for the next two years to graduate. It's just, and again, I want to go back to what you said, Casey, just as simple as creating a map and a degree matriculation that is meaningful, but does not keep them at the university longer than they need to be. I, I don't know. So that's one hmm. way that it comes up for me. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, I, I, I just always loved my English teachers. If I'm honest, I loved my English teachers. Um, I even things we were reading that I thought initially I was not interested in, like they could make it interesting, you know, and just the power of um, the word and storytelling and, and all of that, I just think is um, relevant across. But I, I would say it like if we were looking at all the administrators um, in our school, I, I would say most of them don't have humanities degrees. I don't know. I could be wrong, but I I just think there's something to it. I mean, I'm a, uh, there's such a push for STEM and mm-hmm. I understand that. And I also think um, literature, humanities, the arts um, is so fundamental to speaking to who we are as whole people um, mm-hmm. that, yeah, I'm always curious to hear, you know, like you didn't, it wasn't an inevitable pathway that you ended up where you are right now. Nor are you, no, I Kelvin. To yeah. be an English professor. Yeah, I, I was going to do what someone else did to me. <laughs> <That's all>. um, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, yes, and um, it. I don't know, but I, I did find myself asking the question: um, How is being an English professor connected to adult education, mm-hmm. community tutoring? and all this other stuff I was doing. And it started to not feel the same way anymore. And then depending on who, what program and where you were, I mean, I, I don't think I was in the right space to stay. It was, it was still, um, it was still too much. Uh, how can I say this? It was, there was too much curriculum that was still protective of whiteness. Yes. And, and um, scholars, writers, creators of color were still just specialty topics. Mm-hmm. And I just, just sick of that mm-hmm. and didn't have the resources to take a beat and think it through. And, um, but I would love for us all to be able to go to the programs we want to go to and not have to worry about, you know, are we going to get a robust, multicultural, multi-ethnic experience? That's just, I would love that for every undergraduate and graduate. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. Natasha, we really could talk to you all day. I wonder if, well, I mean, we, we've we been talking for a little while. But I wonder, <laughs> I mean, before we go, I, you know, I just, you know, just going to a a middle school to vote yesterday. And I just, one of the things that I'm really both excited about and nervous about 
um, with having a, a child is, you know, like public schools. Mm. I love, I mean, I physically love being in school buildings. Um, I mean, I spent a lot of time in preschool classrooms. Um, I'm just really excited. I love school. Love it. Um, and at the same time, um, I have fears around like technology, obviously school shootings, you know, uh, there's just so many challenges right now, but um, just so foundational to our society. Um, and I just wonder what are some of the ways um, this is for, for everyone. Um, <laughs> just thinking about burnout, both in our, in higher education um, in K-12, like what are some of the ways um, that you've either seen people recover from burnout or, or come back um, or prevent it from happening at all? Because we even started this conversation talking about how, how frantic we are, you know, those are three of us here and certainly folks listening, they're probably also doing three other things at the same time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I can't wait. I'm asking for a friend. Well, I can't wait. So I hope Kelvin's going to answer this because from I hope a career development perspective, I would love to hear your perspective on just the trajectory and, and what we should be thinking about differently in terms of K-12 education. I, I would have to say that what I'm seeing, I, I'm not seeing people return. I mean, so, but what I am hoping is, as we build, as we strengthen our relationships with school districts, mm-hmm. uh, one of the sessions that I, I just proposed was, um, you know, you're going to be talking about all this, what you can do in the classroom, but I know that there are teachers who are interested in teacher education mm-hmm. and they've had student teachers or they've had um, they've mentored our students, you know, for one semester and then they just disappear. But I have seen I have to speak to the incredible teachers because we could talk all day about the ones that should not be in mm-hmm. the schools, the classrooms. But I have to speak to the teachers that are they're burnout and it's just lack of support or and just or, or not having the support to think about how to how to not spread themselves so thin and mm-hmm. taking on lots of teacher leadership too soon and, and with so much intensity. Uh, so I am starting to think more about how we don't just wait for people to send us their CVs and, hey, I want to teach a class for you, but really something more deliberate in creating. And it's this is not novel and, and anything you know amazing, but just being more intentional about creating this group of teacher leaders who want to give back and they're still teaching, but then one night a week they're on the other side and they're reminded of the bright eyed and the, um, the most positive ideas about what teaching should be. And then also helping our, our current teacher candidates think seriously and critically about their role in in equity and and what that and what it really looks like every day so that's the only thing that i i can offer right now and until we just keep fighting for better conditions for teachers right 
still ask for too much. Mm. We do. The, the best teachers are doing so much work and, um, well, gosh, I, I could go on and on, but just trying to figure out how to support them while they're in the thick of things. And I'll leave it at that. Yeah. So good. Um, you asked a lot in that question, right? So I, <laughs> right, right, right. right. Um, so I think in relationship to burnout. So for me, let me start. I always say that burnout, it's such, we don't have enough nuance in the conversation around burnout. I think we stick so much on the individual and not like the systems and power that are contributing mm -hmm. to burnout, right? Right, right. Um, so I just wanna name that as we think mm -hmm. about the concept of burnout. If I'm using myself as an example, I think if we are trying to really have, how do we recover from burnout? There's three areas for me. So one, what does it mean to actually write the three-point plan? I know. Um, there it is, there it is. There it is. What does it mean to actually prioritize rest? I'm not even taking notes. Um, and so recognizing that rest, there are domains of rest. So psychological rest, emotional rest, physical rest, and really sitting and having honest conversation about, well, maybe I'm just not actually prioritizing this domain of rest. And we gotta be honest with ourselves about that, right? Mm -hmm. um, because sometimes we are our own perpetrator of our own burnout and we yeah. are afraid to have that conversation. Um, mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think about that. I think about too, oftentimes we are also afraid to say, what do I need to stop? Because we own, if we feel like we have a sense of ownership to give away feels like we failed. Um, and for many of us in both ultimately the K through 20 pipeline to give away means, and to fail is not in our DNA, um, rather than seeing this as an opportunity for reevaluation, um, and ultimately program evaluation, right? Like what can we holistically do? Um, and third, where I send as a higher education administrator, this is the critical question I ask every day. What do you have the capacity to do? So this could be cute. This could be real nice, real intentionally, mm -hmm. but I don't have the capacity to do that. So why am I wasting time, talent, and energy to do that? Mm -hmm. um, and I think sitting in the fullness of capacity could do way better in terms of time, talent, and resource mm -hmm. than most people give it benefit. So what is rest? You know, what is you know capacity? Um, all those things are really important to me. I think when it comes to institutions of higher education, so this is actually where my research agenda wants to go. Um, we, I'll just say it, we are horrible in higher education about what does talent management actually look like for us. Um, and so when we talk about talent management, what is the employee life cycle? Um, what do we hope the employee's life cycle looks like? Um, what do we hope people gain from an employment enterprise that we have? And then more importantly, as an administrator or a leader of the institution, how am I tuning into the pain points of the employee life cycle um, and how am I aware of that, right? So we also, we pretty much know, you know, the recruitment, the onboarding, the orienting, the performance plan, all that good stuff, right? Mm -hmm. um, but if we're really gonna turn about burnout, then an institution has to have awareness of where does the burnout occur in that process. Right, right, right. Um, and more importantly, is it the personal capacity or is it the organizational or environmental capacity that's creating the burnout? Um, and so that critical awareness and duality of the both and for me. So one, recognizing that people are people 
And how do we help them meaning make their experience? But also recognizing they are a person and a system that has been predesigned mm-hmm. that everyone won't succeed. And so if we start the conversation there, how do we own that? We know 98% are going to be great, but there's going to be 2% that we know inevitably will have problems. And so what does it mean to think critically about the 2%? Um, and that requires a different leadership style. It requires mm-hmm. a different framework for saying we're going to mess up. So what happens when we do? Professor Kelvin. You have to, I mean, if, if you're not writing, I'm hoping that what you just said now is it's somewhere and you're just yeah working and tweaking and um, trying to get to it. <laughs> no, I mean, because it ties, it is well aligned with DEI. Yes. It's, it's well aligned. You're, you're asking, we're, we're still asking one or two or three formally to do the work. And then we're hoping for the organic, we're hoping for the groundswell, but we're, we're still, we, we still have a lot of work to do. And then when you were talking, Kelvin, you reminded me of this article. Um, Cause I have to, I have to give some, I have to shout out and it's, it's not a research article and it doesn't have to be, but um, this brother Sharif El Mickey wrote an, uh, an article and I'm going to see, cause I was writing down some people that I've been thinking about lately teaching while black. And, and if you, if you Google teaching while black and it's like an open letter to school leadership or school leaders. And one of his points is, you know, burnout, he talks about burnout and it's, it's very concise but he's saying you you hired me to do very specific work you 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 know you know my role you know my purpose but i'm you know i got a foot out the door because it's a lot to carry and then um there's so much work in higher ed and in your higher ed so i'm not even gonna try to do it i, I read lots of higher ed work but um and then there's another article that I have to speak to about, um, gosh, what is her her first name? Her last name is Amos. And she interviewed Latina bilingual educators who were teaching assistants and they were moved into, you know, licensed positions and how, you know, we're wanted but used is mm-hmm. the, the article is wanted and used. And I I have my own students reading that article and then, you know, the students who do not identify as Latina and or bilingual, then, you know, how are you contributing to what they're talking about? And um, and so all of what you're saying, it has to be addressed across mm-hmm. P20. It, right. it has to be yeah. addressed. And um, so go on and do that work, Calvin. <laughs> do that work. I often say it is because of my program and my PhD, I had to take the history of education, mm. K through 12, and the history of higher education, right? To have the fullness of understanding what are the historical, social, political, and economic foundations of education. Because in this country, they are oftentimes interconnected, even though we treat them as two separate entities. It is truly a P20 environment. Um, and recognizing that we have this ongoing and in some ways concentric circles, right, of influence and engagement that we really have to situate ourselves with. And it is such a good point about um, thinking about pain points or like as you were talking, the metaphor that came to me was um, 
I have an old car and the brakes just started squeaking. And then I found out when I took it to the mechanic that um, it's not that the brakes were bad, but they were just like sticking, you know, and thus needed to all be replaced. <laughs> so maybe we should do that um, <laughs> with the system. But that that it's that sticking point and how, well, what are those points like structurally, like where you feel all the psychological pressure, the actual pressure to make a change. Um, it's making me think it's really easy to burn out um, in administration as well. Because if you, if you know why you're there, you know what you want to do. Mm-hmm. You're spinning your wheels and you feel like you can't do it. Um, and then you can't, you can't fall asleep at night because it's running through your mind. Um, and then, so it's just, yeah, I can really see how that, I mean, I feel that as a teacher too. Casey, have you been reading my diary? <laughs> <laughs> You know, it is it, my phone, my little text diary. <laughs> I mean, speaking of enclaves, it is really helpful to, um, yes. to know that we're not alone. And obviously, we know that you know the landscape of higher ed has, a, of course, variations. But it's nice to hear that some of the the struggles and some of the possibilities um, are shared. It's nice to to talk to somebody else mm-hmm. about that. One thing that I think one final thing that was on my mind, I didn't say it originally, but I think we also struggle collectively when we talk about burnout, the intergenerational tension that exists of how generations experience burnout. Yeah. Um, And what does that mean to situate the collective around burnout? Right. Um, As a younger millennial, that is in age somewhat closer to my Gen Z students than I am mm. my counterparts in administration, right? Mm. Um, yeah, there's just some things I'm just not going to do. I'm not going to take it. And I'm counterculture that this is not my life's work, right? Yeah. This is important work. This is meaningful work, but this is not my life's work. It's not your whole identity. Correct. Yeah. Um, please understand. I clock in and clock out. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yep. Um, and that's not neg- non-negotiable for me. So like for me, burnout is the thermometer that allows me to say it's time to check out because if you're burnt out, that means you have given too much capacity to this space. Yep. You know what? Let me know if you ever do (laughs) any type of, no, if you ever do a webinar or series on that intergenerational Mm -hmm. aspect, because it is, it's so real because I'm, I'm older than you are. And I'm going to tell you that, I, I struggle with the boundaries. I, I have to do, there's so many things. I mean, my children help, but as they get older, mm-hmm. I find myself getting going back to old patterns yes, because yes. there's a little bit more time. I forgot that you raise your children and you're supposed to have a little more time to, to rediscover yourself outside of being a parent. But that's another, uh, another podcast for another time. <laughs> <laughs> but no, then work fills that up, yeah. right? Yes, but I it but I cannot allow no it's it's ludicrous, it's unhealthy. Yeah. And um but I can tell that there is a generational mindset of the the clock is running constantly. Why aren't you answering the email that I sent at two AM? It's craziness. And and people joke about it, but it's it's a sense of urgency that we don't really we don't have it in higher ed. 
unless a student is in trouble, unless a colleague is in trouble, that's the urgency. But an agenda for a meeting, irrelevant. Come (laughs) on, right? You're not saving lives with that. But it's so I. You said it, and you you just I don't know. It's like being in church. I I I heard it. It it was for me. The message delivered. Mm -hmm. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Kelvin. That's a great note to end on right there. So yes. thank you both so, so much for this conversation. Um, and we will stay in touch. Kelvin, you're going to write something and send it on. Sure. Within, One of these days. Within the boundaries of your, yeah, you know. your healthy work life. It could life. be even an op-ed, Kelvin. It could yes. be, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm really saying, yes, yes. A two-pager, something. Get it out there. Diverse issues in higher ed. I mean, in, in education or whatever it is now. But something, anywhere. We'll get there. Okay. All right. Well, Natasha, thank you so much for being with us today. It was a pleasure meeting you too. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you.